Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Well, welcome to another Word in Your Ear. I'm delighted to say we're joined by a man who's been a feature of my life since about 14 years old, I think, since I, when I first saw Peter and Gordon on the television and thought, <laughs> what an enviable life that appears to be. <laughs> a young man appears to be having enormous success and, and Paul McCartney's his mate and Jane Nash is his sister and... Uh, then it, it all went wrong after that because <laughs> he turned into a kind of international career, producing and managing all sorts of extraordinary artists, Linda Ronstadt, uh, James Taylor, Randy Newman, Joni Mitchell, being involved in just about everything interesting in the music business and still doing it all those years later. So I'm delighted to say we're joined by Peter Asher. Peter, lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Good to see you too. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, and you're in you're in Los Angeles, which is home. I'm in Malibu, yes, which is which is Los Angeles, really. Right. Okay. But on on the beach. Now, when you when you I first saw you, you entered my life on probably a Radio City Go or something like that, doing World Without Love. What year was that? Sixty five, probably sixty four. Sixty four. Okay, sixty four. By then, you were already. Quite a seasoned entertainment show business professional, weren't you? In the sense that you'd had a kind of acting career as a child, hadn't you? Before that, yes, I was. A, yeah, I was a child actor first. I started when I was eight. Yeah, my f- did my first sun- film when I was eight. My first film was very distinguished in that my mother in the film was played by Claudette Colbert. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, so yeah. Uh, uh, those of us old enough to remember Claudette Colbert, who was a gigantic American movie star, and so yeah, I got to kiss Claudette Colbert at a very young age, which was exciting. And you were also in right, get into that career because you were stopped on the street by a talent scout with your sisters. Wasn't that right? Uh, sort of. It was in the park. Um, and uh, yes, I think because we all three had red hair and were graded in height. Uh, yeah. Apart, um, somebody said to my mother, you know, that you should, oh, I've got this agent you should meet. That you, could, you know, you can make some money off those kids or whatever she said. I don't yeah, know. Yeah. And, uh, but anyway, we, we were excited by the idea. So we went off and signed up with this agent um and and we all got work actually 
We never did do anything, all three of us together, unfortunately. But you were Jane, in the and in- did, Jane and I did an episode of Robin Hood together. Uh, yes, I'm going to say. And yeah. I think I can vaguely remember it. We were, were the- a couple of couple of peasant children. But most <laughs> I, I was in several episodes of Robin Hood. Mostly I was playing Prince Arthur, but... But then eventually I got demoted to peasant child. And, uh, and, <laughs> and the, the two of us, our father was wrong, wrongfully accused and we went to Robin Hood for help. But you'd, uh, by, by the time you started playing music, that had kind of gone, they, the acting career had finished, hadn't it, really? Uh, well, there was, there was a degree of overlap. I mean, the, the, I did a lot of BBC radio. Um, I don't know if anybody remembers Jennings at school. Oh, really? Yes. Were you in there? Yes. I, I was Derbyshire. Oh, wow. Oh, fantastic. Very good good <laughs> so, work. And I did that. Um, so the, I, I don't know the exact chronology of it, but, but I kept doing, I did a lot of radio. So, cause that was, you know, you, you could do it all in a day. You'd rehearse in the morning and, yeah. and, and, uh, uh, but I, but I was also singing. So, uh, a bit, but not, not doing gigs or anything, but yeah, there was a little bit of overlap, but because of course we were, we were a very music oriented family anyway, you know, cause our mother was a professional musician. So the house was full of music. My father was a big music fan, big Gilbert and Sullivan fan and played the piano and so right. on. So music was very much part of our lives. Can you remember the first time you played, you know, professionally on the stage in front of people? Uh, that would probably have been like a, a party at school, you know, that kind of thing, if, if you count that as professional. But, I mean, that was uh, sitting in the corner of the room deliberately, now we're going to do some songs and entertaining people. It's really all the same from then on, just the, the where you're playing and the size of the audience that changes. But um, so we, we, you know, it's the first time we did it other than for ourselves was at school, yeah. Right. And then Peter and Gordon, you got these kind of, you got a residency, didn't you, in the West End when you're still quite young? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we played at a place called the Pickwick Club, which was a, a lot of the, it was named the Pickwick Club after the musical because it was owned by Leslie Brickus, who, who's a oh, right, yes. brilliant man who died very recently and is sorely missed. Um, he and uh, I think probably Anthony Newley, but he was there less, you know, they were partners. Uh, they, they, uh, that was why it was called the Pickwick Club, because they had the Pickwick musical, which was a success in London, I think, but I don't think it made it across to America. But uh, that's why That's where made... you were signed, wasn't it? Were you signed? Yes. To the Pickwick? Yes. 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 So what happened there? Norman Newell, uh, uh, you know, very traditional A&R guy in a, in a shiny suit, um, uh, came up to us after our set and said that he liked the way we sounded and would become an audition uh, which meant going to EMI Studios, as it was called then. They hadn't switched the name to Abbey Road yet. And uh, EMI Studios and recording several of the songs that we'd done live, just the two of us on a mic, which is very exciting. And uh, they offered us a record deal. He liked the way we sounded. And he had some, um, he already had uh, some, uh, Sorry, I got distracted by watching an email arrived in the other corner of my screen. <laughs> Something I have to change today. Um, but yeah, uh, we, we'd already, he'd already picked out some songs uh, from our live set. And I think at the time he was imagining us being sort of England's answer to the folk boom, you know, as yes, it were. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, Peter and Paul without Mary or, you know, the Kingston duo kind of thing. And, and, uh, and, uh, 
but then he picked up uh, 500 miles was he particularly liked our arrangement of and i think had we not founded some other songs one in particular that that would probably have been our first single we would have been somewhere in the folk world how did you arrive at that look because i think mike myers said that he'd based his austin powers character isn't that right on on you in in peter and golden with the the sort of frock coat thing to, to be fair um not exactly. I mean, yes, he, the the look of Austin Powers derived to some extent from some particular pictures of me. Yeah. So he, he pointed, he can point to some, a couple of specific pictures. But how did I arrive at glasses and, and bad teeth was that I had <laughs> bad eyesight and bad teeth. So, uh, you know, um, and I got my teeth fixed when I got to America. I mean, there was nothing wrong with them except there were too many of them and they're all crowded and crossed over in the church. <laughs> traditional British style. So, um, uh, that, that look, um, apparently, and yes, I wore the frothy shirts and that, that kind of stuff. Um, so, so yes, the, the, the look of Austin Powers derived from yeah. photos of me, but yeah. people go, Oh, so Austin Powers was based on you. And I go, no, uh, apparently Simon D was one of the role models. For oh Austin. yes. It would yes. Be, he would have been. Kind, yeah, absolutely. The yeah, all kinds yeah. of, so I'm, I'm always very anxious to say, you know, when people go, oh, so can we just say Austin Bowers was based on you? I said, no, so definitely not. But but we did contribute to the his fantastic look, which was me. <laughs> so first single, World Without Love, is that was that the first single? It was, was yes, it? Yes, yes. That was number one, is that right? Yes, yes. In 30 countries, I think. Also, so, last week, number one everywhere, number one in America eventually, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yes. So how and old were you at the time? Sorry? How old were you at the time? 20, I suppose. Right. I was born in 44. I'm, I'm pretty bad at dates, but I do remember that, that it was 64, and I do remember that I, I know for a fact that I was born in 44, so 20. Right, right. And, so that, and that was a Lennon-McCartney song or a Paul McCartney song? It was a Paul McCartney song. Right. And how did you get that? Uh, well, as you know, he was living in our house. Um, yes. He and I shared the top floor of the house. So I got to hear various songs at various stages of completion. And uh, I remember hearing this song, Well Without Love, and and it only, which wasn't finished. Apparently Paul wrote it when he was like 16. It was pre-Beatles, I guess. Mm. Um, and, uh, uh, but it wasn't finished. And John apparently dismissed it as a potential Beatles song because he thought the, in particular, the lyric was ridiculous. He, he, when Paul started off the song, Please Lock Me Away, John would interrupt him and say, okay, I will, the song's over. Um, <laughs> um, so they weren't going to do it. And uh, Paul's gone on record as saying he didn't think it was sort of up to their standard, I guess, but but he didn't like it as much as I did. So when we got this record deal and Norman said, you know, if you have any other ideas of songs to do, you know, uh, other than the ones that he'd already chosen from listening to our live show and the audition tape, uh, you know, bring them along. And I said, you know, maybe I do. And, and went back to Paul and said, you know, could we, could we have a go at that song and could you please finish it? And, uh, he said, yes. And yes. And eventually I, as I recall, I did have to nag him slightly as the session day <coughs> drew near Norman had said he was booking some great musicians, which he did. And set a day aside at Studio Two in 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 EMI Studios, and and um, this wasn't we weren't contracted for an album at that point. It was you know go in the studio, cut four or five songs, and we'll decide you know if, if we have a single. And 
But that's when I went back to Paul and, and, and he did eventually take his guitar and go into his room for, you know, a stunningly short, like seven or eight minutes. And, and uh, <laughs> Unbelievable. No, seriously, people, people, think that's, people laugh when I say that always, but, but that one, that's true. I mean, those of you are, you know, how long can it take to write? So I wait and in a while I will see my true love smile. She may come. I know not when, when she does, I'll know. So baby until then, that was it. That was the bridge, you know? Uh, so you either have it, have ideas like that in your head or you don't, most of us don't. And, but, but he did and, and gave us the bridge and wrote out the lyrics and the chords for me, which he did for the whole song, uh, a piece of paper, which you may well guess is. is and you safe. still have it, don't you? I do. It's locked in a fireproof safe. <laughs> I, I always make the joke on stage that, you know, when, when the show business, when the music business goes to shit completely, I can run to Sotheby's as fast as my legs can carry me in. <laughs> Paul can save the day yet again. It hasn't come to that yet, but you never know. Do you do you have loads of souvenirs of, of no. the old days? You don't really. No. Do you don't no. have old records or anything like no. that? Really? No. no, I used to have a white album number like 11 or something and all kinds of stuff that has disappeared into the mists of time. Oh, dear God. So Peter, Peter Gordon had, had a number of hits. It went on for quite a while, didn't it, really? I mean, the, the yes. kind of beat boom success for quite a while. Yes. Right. I, I, you don't ask me how long, because as I said, I'm not so good at dates, but several years, yeah. Right, right. And if and you that, didn't write records that time, you didn't write the song. In fact, the amounts of money you earned were very, very slight, weren't they? Correct. Well, yeah, what would you earn from a million selling record? Um, well, we, we uh, a million selling single. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we used to get, the royalty then for the Beatles and us was a penny a record, um, uh, which sounds bad enough until you read the small print, which says half royalties overseas. Yes. <laughs> which means, so, so in, in America, it was a hate a record, which I think means it's about 4,000 pounds on a million seller, I think. Yeah, right, right. You know, but, so up, then commissions, then divide by two. Yeah. yeah. So no, you were not about to... Uh, to a <laughs> no, no. But the thing you were, you, you, early on, the thing hmm. you were really interested in doing was producing... Yes. Is that fair to say? So what was your first yes. experience of doing that? What was it like producing records in the 60s? Uh, same as it is now, really. Uh, I, I Yeah, the first time I was in the studio, I knew I wanted to be a record producer. The first time I figured out what a record producer does, the fact that you can hire musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to play, seemed brilliant <laughs> to me. And what kind of a great job is that? You know, And... <laughs> and um, so I knew that was something I wanted to do. And, and what's worth noting is that now, of course, when you want to be a producer, you sit down at your laptop and you produce, you know, you come up with uh, a track, a groove, a beat or whatever, you know, um, and you can sit there by yourself saying, here's what I can do. Uh, back then, there was literally no way to demonstrate any ability to produce records other than having musicians in a real studio. Without that, you just couldn't. Um, you had to talk your way into the fact that you might be able to do it. And, and so I owe uh, Paul Jones a great debt of gratitude because Paul Jones was a dear friend of mine and is to this day. And well, I haven't seen him for a while. And as you know, one of the great harmonica players in music and, and a cool guy altogether. And he was going to make a, a solo album and he'd watched me working on some of the Peter and Gordon records, of which I was never officially the producer, but I was the interfering artist. So I, um, 
you know, was would get very involved in the arrangement and the, what the musicians played and so on, and the sound. And so uh, <coughs> Paul asked me if I would like to produce some tracks for this upcoming album. And I jumped to the opportunity. The first record I produced was uh, a song, a Bee Gees song called And the Sun Will Shine, which hadn't been a hit for the Bee Gees. And I really liked the song and thought it could be a success. And uh, so I produced that with Paul Jones. That was my very first record. I wanted to take No Chances and get a really good rhythm section on that record. You may know the story or not, but so I um, I booked a, a good band. I had Nicky Hopkins playing piano. My friend Paul Samuel Smith, a uh, great producer himself, of course, went on to do yeah. Cat Stevens and Carly Simon. And all that. He played bass. Uh, I asked him to if he could bring along the guitar player in his band because I didn't know Jeff Beck, but I thought he was very good. So uh, I asked Paul if he would ask Jeff if he would come and play, which he said yes. So I had Jeff Beck on guitar. Um, uh, who did I say? Nicky Hopkins on piano, Paul Samuel Smith on bass, and Paul McCartney playing drums. McCartney on drums. That's yes. right. Yeah. Incredible. <laughs> Uh, and that that was it wasn't a hit. It was it did bubble into the charts and bubble out again. But but it's a good record. I still listen to it today and go, it's pretty good. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost fifty pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Could have been but around this stage, you were offered a job by Paul McCartney, in fact, to come and work at Apple and be kind of head of A&R. So yes. what, give us some idea of what, I mean, just had it's unbelievably chaotic. But I mean, what kind of people were approaching you for record deals? What people were, what kind of people were sending you tapes? Oh, well, tapes. The tapes, of course, came from thousands of people. I mean, you know, Apple had an active campaign. One of the differences we were going to create was that, unlike uh, um, record companies, that you know, we do not accept unsolicited material. Blah blah blah. You had to come through a lawyer or a manager or something. At Apple, we said, "Please send us your stuff." We took ads in Melody Maker and NME saying, "Send us your tapes," and we got thousands. Surely a mistake. <laughs> um, and I had a team of about four people, I think, helping me listen to all the crap that came in. 
Um, and unfortunately, it wasn't any good. But and nothing came out of that, did it? No, I don't think so, except maybe, I don't know how uh, George Harrison was enamored of this guy, Brute Force, who had that record, The King of Fur. Are you familiar with that? No, no I don't, don't know that. that. Oh, um, well, there's a guy called Brute Force who's still around. Um, <laughs> really? <laughs> and and he, he wrote a song called I Am the King of Fur. The lyrics of which were, I'm the king of fur, I'm the fucking king. And <laughs> I'm the fucking. So George thought this was hilarious and we signed him. Um, and uh, the fucking came out. And, and uh, to EMI's consternation. And and uh, not sure what happened to him, but I think he's still around. But no, uh, I don't remember how that came in. That might have been a sent-in tape. But But no, we were disappointed. Um, most, you know, it was, some of it was just not very good. Some of it would be people sending, you know, um, a hundred pages of certifiably mental lyrics where, where they're <laughs> yeah. absolutely certain that John Lennon is going to set them all to music for them and things like that. So, um, <laughs> so it was, it was tricky. But what but, are yeah, the people? We would have people? a, I would have a weekly A&R meeting with as many Beatles as were around and, and some of the other people at Apple and play whatever, had survived the sifting process that our assistants had subjected it all to. But then James Taylor turned up at your door. Yes. Through a mutual acquaintance. Yes. And that's described. You want want the whole thing from the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, you summed it up very concisely. (laughs) But you talked about hearing, because he came over, I think, to your place and bought a guitar and bought a tape. And you yes. talked about being completely bowled over by his yes. musical ability and the quality of the songs. Describe what impression he made. Well, um, he, you know, he was a tall, gangly, you know, re- very reticent um, uh, person and, you know, incredibly good looking, but very mysterious looking. And um, yeah, every aspect of the music. I mean, if you think about it, his guitar playing is uniquely brilliant. Uh He's, he's still underrated as a guitar player in my in my view, and and his his singing was fantastic because he had a folky voice. You know, at that time, if you had don't forget that if you had long hair and played the guitar acoustic guitar, you were a folk singer, regardless yeah. of whether you never sang a folk song in your whole life. The term singer songwriter had not curiously been invented. I know it sounds like a term that's been around forever, but it hasn't. Um, nobody said. Oh, if you heard James Taylor and Joni Mitchell, great singer-songwriters, they said great folk singers. And and uh, so, uh, and then his songs were amazing because he was right. He used all these chords that were like more like R&B chords, you know, from, from a Manhattan's record or something. And it was clear that while he sang with a folky tonality, to some extent, his singing idols were not, you know, uh, Bob Dylan, John Baez, they were Sam Cooke and Ray Charles. And, uh, and so, yeah, I was super impressed. And, and I, you know, famously had a conversation that to the best of my recollection really is, you know, it's it's funny you, you arrived today because I've just got this new job. I'm head of A&R for a record company. Would you like a record deal? And he said, yes, please. I'd love one. And it's the Beatles record. And it's the Beatles record. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the Beatles record company. And I took him by the office in a matter of days and, and, and 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 when I got to the office, I said, are there any Beatles in the house? And it was Paul and George who were there, so they listened to James. I mean, I could have signed him anyway because I had made it clear that if I was going to be head of A&R, I wanted the right to sign people. But at the same time, 
signing somebody who who would was not liked and admired by uh, the yeah. board of governors yeah. or directors or whatever they were owners um would have been uh, pointless yeah they all shared what the fact that he's so shy he was so shy is interesting you didn't think that was going to get in the way of his ability to be a self-promoter no it didn't really occur to me i just thought yeah. me it's amazing the first record comes out on Apple and gets good reviews, but doesn't really do anything. And yeah. uh, and Apple falls up, uh, is, is on the point of falling apart. You, yeah. you you eventually get him a deal at Warner Brothers. Yes, and and that's Sweet Baby James. And the thing well, that- we we agree that that, that um, yeah, because I was going to leave Apple, and and he wanted to as well. He met Alan Klein, didn't like him. I knew Alan Klein by previous reputation through some friends in New York, and they didn't like him. And so we were leaving and uh and then at that point we agreed that i would become his manager we said because it was clear that we needed somebody and we didn't know anybody else we trusted to do it so i said well i'll do it and he went okay and and uh you know i figured how hard can it be and 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 certainly when you think about it the the you know it's like nowadays when people say to me what what what's the you know what's the secret to being a great manager and it's pathetically simple it's a great client because because if you think about it, I mean, I inducted the first two managers ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They asked me to do it. And they, they of course, were Brian Epstein and Andrew Lou Goldham. And it's like, yes. duh. You know, yeah. well, what was their secret? <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> the Rolling Stones and the Beatles. So, so yes, I figured, you know, Brian Epstein was ran a record shop. And his primary genius was the fact that he realized how great the Beatles were and he believed in them completely and he dedicated his, himself to them with determination and honesty you know so I tried to do the same so with James Taylor when the breakthrough was sweet baby James and yeah and it's amazing to listen to that record nowadays because it was it was so against the grain of loads of things that were going on in popular music at the time wasn't it it felt as if we'd come out of a period of great busyness and suddenly the thing about James Selly was it, it was calm. It was personal. Is that yeah. fair to say? Yes, that's fair to say. Do, do, is that a, a quality you try to get into the record? Because you're obviously the producer. Not not specifically, no. Uh, I mean, my aim as a producer is pretty much always the same, which is how to make the best possible version of that song as a record, you know. Um, so it's, which is what it's based on. I wasn't thinking about, calmness or you know um because later on james of course became you know people actually make fun of it because he was the 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 lead advocate of this conceived what was conceived of as very calm you know sweet kind of music of course it, it wasn't really a lot of those songs were about fairly brutal topics and no sure and james's, <laughs> yeah, life, james's life itself was by no means you know all sunshine and 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 so, uh, but the success of that record did sort of change the music industry slightly, didn't it? Yes, I mean, when they put him on the cover of Time magazine, I think it was James Taylor, the new rock, soft yes. and low, or something. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, and, uh, yeah, it 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 changed things and and it made the acoustic guitars cool again in a way. And yeah, and it. But as I said, that was when you know suddenly Neil and Joni and James were singer songwriters. Uh, yeah. They, folk singers um and it was different the folk clubs were 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 were, were a different kind of phenomenon it was a bunch of you know, revolutionary lefties playing playing clubs suddenly the singer songwriters was you know it was uh 
was people playing arenas and stadiums. And well, you put him on, I think you put him on supporting The Who. You got him a, a support slot with The Who. He did a couple of dates opening for The I Who, I can't yeah. really imagine how that would have gone, but it worked. It, yes, it worked. Um, well, here's the thing. We were playing clubs. If we played a folk club, there might be 50 people there. You know, it might be less. Um, nobody knew who he was. So when I got him these Who dates, you know, Yes, a, a good 70% of the audience weren't paying attention. But the 30% down the front who were, who were going, who is this kid? And what, you know, this is good, um, was more than we would have played to any other way. So, so I remember walking around the back at that particular gig, and, oh, this was a terrible mistake because people are in the back talking and trying to pick up women and making drug deals or whatever they were doing. They were not listening. But, but as you got to the front, you could gradually feel this this a whole segment of the crowd, you know, maybe the front quarter or third or whatever it was, were discovering James Taylor, which is what this yeah. was all. That's one of the things that people say about managers. I know you say that the secret of being a good manager is you have a great client. Is is good managers spend a lot of time looking at the audience, don't they? I suppose that's true. Yeah, I certainly did. Yes. I mean, I yeah. Interesting. Seeing what songs have what reaction. Well, yeah. re- relaying yeah. that to the artist. Yeah. 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 So uh, you've managed a number of people, you know, at, at different times over the years. Is it just yeah. in response to them asking you, is it? Or have you. In Linda's asked? case, yes. Linda was the next person I signed. Uh, right. Yes. And I'd, I'd heard her in New York. Someone had said, told me to go down to the bitter end uh, where she was playing and uh, said, this. This girl's got the most amazing voice you've ever seen. <coughs> and she sings barefoot in these short shorts and is spectacular. And it was all true. And and she asked me, first of all, if I would <clears throat> help her finish her record. She'd worked with a couple of different producers and the record was in a bit of a muddle. And I did. And then she asked me if I would be a manager. And then the next album was the one that I produced from beginning to end, which was Hard Like a Wheel. And, that right. did very, that and you had to extract it from uh, Herb Cohen, who's Zappa's manager, who's managing her. So you must have had an enormous amount of belief in her to have I gone did. through all that. So what, what, yeah. what was it about her that made you think she was going to be that commercially successful? Well, again, like James, it was everything. I mean, yeah. what's not to love? She was the most amazing singer I'd ever heard. And she was, you know, incredibly good looking. And, and you know, um, brilliant, turned out. You know, that's a surprise, and that's what a lot of people fail to grasp. Because she's, you know, this super hot chick, and um, people wouldn't occur to people that she's also one of the most remarkably well-read and brilliant women I've ever met, and yeah. still is. Yeah. Uh, I visit her whenever I can. She's not well, as you know, but she, she's still in tip-top condition mentally, um, which isn't always the case with the disease that she has, but she she's... Um, She's doing fine and and remains one of the most spectacular women I know. So you're still involved in the music business today? Oh, yes. What sort of things are you doing? I just finished making an album with Susanna Hoffs, who I've always been a huge fan of, you know, from the Bangles. Love her singing. And uh, she and I started talking and we decided to make a record together, which is coming out in April um, for various reasons. Um, But she's doing great. And the album came out really well. So I'm proud of that one. Um, gosh, I'm, you know, I do a weekly radio show. I do all kinds. I consult for BMG. I, right. Lot, yeah. I'm, I do a lot of stuff. Are you constantly spotting songs and thinking, yes, that would, okay. 
Yes, I'm very interested in this. You know, I've never been one of those. Oh, they don't write songs like that anymore. Back in my day, all that shit. Right. Um, uh, there's some amazing songwriters. Holly Humberstone is great. Um, there's so many. Uh, I forget. I keep a little list, which I don't remember in my head. I'm but. very impressed by the fact that you know it's very easy if you're kind of our age to think that 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 somehow music was 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 better in the six. 70s, yeah. 80s, whatever. But you don't think that, do you? You think it's just no, as good now? No, no, exactly. I don't. And give us some examples of, of other people that you 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 rate really highly. I think you saw Ed Sheeran very early on, didn't you? And, and immediately imagined he was going to have an international success. I did. I mean, he he was he was big in England. Or that was it was around the time, um, you know, what do you call it? Uh, breathing in snowflakes. What's the I've got, I've got eighteen was was a hit in England. Um, but I've heard him and went, who's this? You know, this is this is great songwriting. And since then, Ed and I have become friends. And uh, and I, I did work with him in the studio on one track for an Elton tribute album. We did a version of Candle in the Wind. Um, but no, he's extraordinary, incredibly hardworking, incredibly determined and and a brilliant songwriter. Yes. Uh, I, I, I'm trying to remember the names. Um, as I say, I keep a list that I don't remember. Because um, every now and then you hear people, um, you know, God, there's a, uh, sorry, I can't remember. No, uh, don't worry. Don't, don't worry, worry. Don't worry. Yeah, no, I'll so, come up with some people. Somebody, somebody's just written a book about you. Yes. Which is presumably because you haven't written one yourself. You, well, you I wrote have... a book based on my my Beatles radio shows. Um, I And... Uh, so I, I did write a book, but it wasn't about me. You know, I, I, I turned down uh, all the offers to write an autobiography because I just don't fancy doing it, figuring out what what you put in, what you leave out, and you know, and all that. So, but when somebody came to me and said, I'm, "I want to write a book about you," I kind of went, "Well, okay, <laughs> you know, right. uh, I, I, you know, you don't need me to do that, you know, necessarily." Um, and Were you pleased with it? Yeah, it seems generally accurate to me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's long, um, but I did eventually read pretty much all of it. <laughs> it's it. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was surprised that and I said, I don't think you'll have it. I, I don't think you'll find a publisher. Eventually he did not, not easily, but he did. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, Peter, it's been lovely to talk to you. Um, all the very best with your next project, Susanna Hoff's record. Yeah, it comes out in April. Very good. Comes out in April. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.